Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is a grounded faith. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. Let us introduce ourselves. I am Pastor Amanda Zensalo, and I serve as the pastor at Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Deacon Bonnie, the facilitator of our Lenten series this year. And I'm Don Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Okay, first of all, welcome back, Deacon Bonnie. Thank you. It is lovely to have you with us again. All right. This Lenten series, you were talking about a particular book. Is that correct? That's right. What prompted you decide to pick this book for this particular year? This book really hit a number of intersections for us. For just over a year, there's been a group, uh, a cohort of folks at Central really looking at developing the capacity to be more actively Mm anti-racist. And uh, we began that work by reading Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, and using that as our meta-narrative and bringing then into discussion with that meta-narrative our personal stories And then between those two places, really finding the place of communal work of anti-racism. One of the key pieces to doing this work together as a community is that that's really where we have the opportunity to make impact. It falls on all of us, I believe, to do our own work and to work on being actively anti-racist in ourselves and in the actions we individually take. But because racism is systemic, Mm -hmm. our anti-racism needs to be systemic. And so that's really where we've been targeting how can we take collective action to not only work on being not racist, but to take steps that are truly anti-racist as a community. So that's sort of the background. And so we've been doing that work and we've moved to a place as a cohort where we were beginning to discern a land acknowledgement for Central Lutheran. Okay. Um, This is the practice that a number of institutions and organizations have of beginning their gatherings by acknowledging the indigenous peoples that the land they gather on, that the land still belongs to them, Mm -hmm. that it's typically unceded land. It was never given in any way. It was just taken and stolen. And so a land acknowledgement is this effort to undo erasure and also to invite those of us in the dominant class to really self-examine not just the history, but our present and to turn intentions toward the future. So this is the part that we're working on now is, is this discernment around a land acknowledgement, which is also meant being attentive to Indigenous people and their experience and how the Indigenous worldview can confront our Eurocentric colonizing worldview. So as we were coming into Lent, we were wanting to use our Lenten time as a time of reflection and deeper listening to Indigenous voices as we work on this land acknowledgement. So... This book that we're using uh-huh. uh, is written by Dr. Randy Woodley, who he and his wife, Edith, are the founders and sustainers of Elohe Farms, and it's an indigenous center for earth justice here in Oregon. 
And Dr. Woodley has written a, a hundred page book called Becoming Rooted. So that's a hundred days of devotions that really talk about learning from an indigenous worldview to reconnect with creator and creation. And this little book is called The Grounded Faith. And it is just a 40 day devotional that covers the time of Lent where I think it's eight authors have taken the reflections of Dr. Woodley and the scriptures that Dr. Woodley is reflecting on and given us a daily devotion throughout Lent. So folks from our social justice committee who were aware of this work through their ecology perspective Mm -hmm. brought this to the attention. There's a lot of overlap between the social justice committee and and those of us working on anti-racism. And so out of our desire to work on climate justice, out of our desire to learn from indigenous peoples and out of our desire to use Lent in a way that is reflective and allow us to, you know, Lent uses a lot of language around returning to God Mm -hmm. and what you'll find when you turn toward God and open your heart to God is that you also end up turning toward whatever God loves and opening your whole heart to what God loves. And so there's this invitation to love our neighbor our indigenous neighbor and to love creation and that we can learn better ways of loving creation if we can listen some to our indigenous neighbors. So how are you breaking this up for people every week? Because you said it's 40 days. Are you then condensing the the week into one discussion or are you picking a particular one for that week? We're condensing each week into a discussion, um, and the discussion typically has two parts. So ostensibly, we've all read the same seven reflections, and the reflections are really pretty brief. Each reflection is just a couple of minutes, and then contemplation prompts at the end that the author has given. And what I do uh, in trying to facilitate our Wednesday night conversations is I've read the weekly contemplations, and I've done some of the practices that the authors uh, recommend. But then I've just sort of sat with the questions and tried to come up with two sets of prompts. And my goal in how these Wednesday night conversations and contemplations go is to build a container that's mostly, the content is what people bring into the room as they respond to the questions. So it's not a didactic form. It's not teaching what's in the book. We've all got the book, but it's using the book to say what what arose from you around these questions. Mm -hmm. How has it been going? Has the response been positive for the most part? Are people participating or do you find you have to sort of coax answers out of people? I'm jumping in and I'm going to say it's so beautiful and so good. Deacon Bonnie does such an incredible job of creating the container and creating these questions that are rich and dig into the heart space of a person and of a community. And I did just totally jump in on this, Deacon. I hope it's okay. But as the person who is there as tech support and as a participant, mm-hmm in getting to be present as a participant in this, it's beautiful to get to sit with the questions and the concepts and to see how it all weaves together. I think one of the beautiful pieces is 
this concept, you know, Deacon touched on it for a moment of how we have our eco-justice members of the Social Justice Coalition who brought forward this concept that they're talking about how the indigenous people are bringing forward this call to connect deeper, which is a connection to how we're doing our anti-racism work, which is also part of our reconciling in Christ work, which is also, it's all this weaving and interconnected work that we're doing. And it's all part and parcel together. And the questions that Deacon hands to us in these Wednesday evenings, the reflections that were offered the opportunity to dig into, give us the opportunity to see the various levels of how it all weaves together, how our understanding of our own story, our own personal story, can connect us to that next level of community story, which connects us to a historical story, but also to a future story and to our community's story. And just this absolutely stunning larger weaving. We can all too often not recognize how it connects or how we connect, or we can overanalyze and lose our hearts within the story for the data that we're trying to learn about. And every single week there has been a heart pull. It's just been phenomenal. So I can't recommend it highly enough. And if you're an introvert, even just finding the questions and journaling on it and taking that journey with a journal would be a rich experience. Obviously, if you can find someone to do that with, that you could then do that reflection even one-to-one and encourage the opportunity to have conversation with a trusted soul, that would make it that much richer. And I understand that it's hard to do some of this reflection work with a lot of people, but my goodness, the stories that have been shared in that space have been truly phenomenally sacred and beautiful. It's been stunning. Excellent. So if you haven't read the book, are you going to get anything out of this? Or do you really need that kind of a background? I've been really intentional about not framing things in an academic way that points directly back to the book. Okay. So if you've read the book, you will recognize the themes of the questions and you will feel drawn in like, oh yeah, I was thinking about that. Mm -hmm. But if you come and whether you've read none of the book or you read the first week, but now we're going into the third week and you just haven't had time, there's nothing in the way the questions are structured that will keep you from being able to engage them. So I think it's uh, very accessible that way you can totally answer the questions I'm using without having read the book. But having read the book might help you to think about it in a layered way. What about the one-two of knowing cast and then having read this book? Do you think that enriches it? Or again, either by itself, fine, together, obviously is going to be more helpful, but it's not necessary. It's not necessary. You know, all knowledge builds. Mm Mm-hmm on other knowledge. And so if you are undertaking a journey to become more actively anti-racist, to do a self-examination of your own formation, how did I get here? Why do I believe what I believe? What have my experiences been? And why do I interpret them through the lens that I do? And if you are on a journey of 
understanding how you might most likely be propping up racist systems and those sorts of things, that's a long walk. Yeah. And for most of us, it starts at the zero entry level of the pool, mm-hmm. not from the 16 foot high dive. So you just begin putting your toes in. The important part is to begin and mm-hmm. keep going and begin at a point where you can keep going. So if you pick up Stamped from the Beginning by Ibrahim Kindi and jump into this heavily academic, really thick book, and that's not what you're wired for or what you currently have capacity for, you may sink. (laughs) You may read half of it and be exhausted and overwhelmed and overdated because it's a very dense, well-researched book and it's 500 pound weight may make you think that I can't do this work. And so if you begin with more accessible things, it's not lesser work. It's just finding the path in. It is the patient persistence to keep coming back to the questions that I think matters over time. This isn't, you know, we have a tendency to consume things. We can approach becoming anti-racist as consumers. Mm -hmm. Just tell me the top 10 books I need to read, the top five things on uh, YouTube that I should watch, and I will eat all this information, and I'm sure it will change me. But consumption and transformation are not the same. You have to be willing to sit with it, and you have to be willing to let it work on you. So, you know, I think... For folks who have been on this particular journey with us, starting with CAST and the conversations and the self-examination of that, and then moving into something like this, it all just builds. Mm -hmm. But there's no... There's no one path. Right, exactly. There's not a roadmap where you can't get on. So, Can you give me an example of a discussion or a point that you would bring, either something from last week or coming up? Sure. Some of the things we've talked about is our own land stories, like Pastor Amanda said. I think we need to examine what, where do we feel attached to land and what does land mean to us? And in some ways that can mean land as in like the actual biological soil. In some ways, land means where's my affinity, my sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And some of that is just understanding not only the intellectual approaches to land and where am I from, but also the spiritual approaches to land and how that impacts both how we treat land from an ecological standpoint of view, mm-hmm. how we treat the earth and the earth's resources, and also really thinking about our beliefs about who owns land and what it means to be a landowner. And that's a piece that I think I'm really trying to help us connect to as a church. Mm-hmm is there's the big picture of the land we're on belonged to people that it was taken from. We are on stolen land. Mm -hmm. So that's a story of the past, but it's also a story of the present, and it's a story of the future. So what does it mean for us to own outright such a large footprint in a city like Portland? So to be the collective owners of this large chunk of land that our church building sits on Mm -hmm. in a city where so many people can't even find a consistent place to set up their tent before they're moved on. Mm -hmm. 
how do we think about that? And do we think about that from an occupier standpoint, from a colonizer standpoint, or do we think about ways to break it open and give it back from an abundance standpoint, from a gift standpoint? How does the land we own as a church become a place of connection and invitation and not a boundary that we preserve and protect? Who are we connected to? One of the challenges with churches is we tend to see them as, well, one book that I I really appreciate is the New Parish Collective's book. And they talk about church being above place, kind of existing like the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really attach to anything. And so you, and this was pre-pandemic, you sort of zoom in there and then you're at church and then you zoom back out. But for many of us in urban environments, it's not our neighborhood. It's not our community. It's just the place we go for maybe two hours. Mm -hmm. And we are so disconnected from the people and the land around us. Are there ethical questions about living that way when you own such a chunk of property? We can be very hypothetical about the neighbor as Christians. Love the neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? My neighbor is the person in China, but we can often step right over the body at our door, quite literally, and Mm -hmm. have our mouths full of talking about the neighbor. And so how can we actually live out the neighbor? How do we understand our neighborhood and our connection through the land? Especially as the pandemic continues to limp along, knowing that the building of Central isn't being used the way it had been previously. How have your feelings about the building and the church itself changed with this discussion that you're having? I don't feel like my feelings about the building have changed, but I think that there is movement within our community about the building. Okay. You sort of get a sense of, a, of an ethos or, or a community orientation toward the property they own. Mm-hmm. So I've been at Central for 16 years, mm-hmm. 14 of those years as, as a member and a lay person, and then the last three years as an ordained person and two as a called person for Central. And the whole time I was have been at Central, I, I have felt like I could hear the song in the background, should I stay or should I go now? Uh-huh. We love this building. It's beautiful. It means so much to us. It's a sacred place. We hate this building. It takes up all our time, all our energy, and all our money. The building sets us free and gives us a resource to do ministry. The building just bottoms us out, and it's a terrible albatross. Mm-hmm. Back and forth, back and forth. And those things are all true. That's not even like two flippant sides. It's those same conversations happen in my own head. Yep. I see the budget go into the building and I want to cry because I believe there's so much we could do. And then I sit in the sanctuary and I do cry because it is so beautiful. Well, and it provides so many opportunities when you aren't in a situation like a pandemic where you can offer a space for so many people for so many good things. Yeah. And that's one of the things I actually think is really interesting about what's happened in the pandemic is for over a decade now, we've had what has often been referred to as a building use ministry. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm like, "Mm, not so much. We have building use, Mm -hmm. but the tendency to slap ministry as a explainer onto everything sometimes falls short there. Ministry should always have an intention of transformation. And if the primary intention is transaction, 
then don't call that part a ministry. Okay. Just be honest about it. Sure. So if what you're doing is we have space that we're not utilizing and that has market value and we can put that market value to work in order to fund ministry, that's building use and that's fine. That's excellent. But to put the whole thing under the heading of building use ministry, it's not always reflecting what's totally going on there. So through this building use that just sort of grew semi-organically, some of the relationships we would get into might be economically advantageous, but take up space that could be used for other things. There's just a balance. There's always a balance when you're putting things together. And there have been certain relationships we've looked at and thought, oh, I really wish we could do something different there. But once you're 10 years into relationship, then the question comes, do you want to break relationship with these people? Mm-hmm. No. Relationship is really, really valuable. Being the church that kicked someone out of somewhere or left them feeling ripped off or that they got a bad deal isn't really building things up. So the pandemic gives us both this struggle of, oh my gosh, how do we suddenly survive without tens of thousands of dollars of building use income? And it gives us this freedom to listen and discern for where God's calling us because we have much more of a blank slate to say, what is the right mix here? What's mm-hmm. the mix of building use for financial gain, building use as a means to a partnership? So getting into a building sharing arrangement with organizations where we share the same mission and what we part of what we bring to the table is space and building use truly as ministry, as mission, as leveraging our space for voices that can't gather in other places, creating opportunity for people who wouldn't be able to, you know, run a small nonprofit, to have a tenants gathering group, to do these things where you would have to pay for space unless the church around the block after your apartment building burns down says, you can meet every other week here for the next five or six months while you go through this legal process suing your landlord because you're not getting your property rights taken care of. Where else are they going to gather? So being able to do those pieces is part of what the pandemic has opened up about how to use the space for an actual connection. And the beauty of the emphasis of meeting outside. We got very used to, you go inside and you shut the doors. Mm -hmm. And so really looking at working a lot with members of the congregation and with uh, Vicki, our building use facilitator, really working on kind of a wraparound idea about how to take the margins of our church property and turn them into intersections, Mm -hmm. how to make them community spaces that belong to the neighborhood, whether we're there or not. Fascinating. All right. I want to bring it back to the actual Zoom conversations because you're gathering on Zoom for this. Mm-hmm. How does it work? Does that make it harder for a discussion that is going to involve, I don't know, as an introvert, I'm going to say boldness and speaking up to actually have a discussion in a space like Zoom, or is it working better than you thought it would? It's working better or more fluidly than these same kinds of conversations a year and a half ago. So people have gotten practiced at okay. being present to one another in the technology. 
I think one thing that folks really like is the questions I'm asking pre-pandemic would have been, well, a number of them would have been one-to-one conversations that I would have invited people into, Mm -hmm. which people are always like, no. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people. Yes. And then table conversations where you're maybe talking with, you know, two dyads. Um, So there's four of you there or whatever. We're having about 10 to 12 people online. And so we're really able to have the conversation without breaking up at all. Okay. And I think people really like that because often when you do table conversations, folks feel like they've missed out because they only know what their thoughts were and that one other person. And they're like, well, I want to hear back from everyone in the room. Because of the way the Zoom technology works where you can truly look one another's, like at one another's faces Mm -hmm. and everybody's individually mic'd, we can kind of share around the room in a way that loses its connectivity if you try to do that in a large in-person space because you can't hear each other that well. You can't, the back and forth is harder. Well, and for somebody who is loath to interrupt other people, utilizing something like the chat becomes so much better of a resource either to ping the group as a whole or to talk to somebody specifically. I would say that some of the capacity to be able to have these conversations and to have people hear one another so much better Mm -hmm. has been such a gift in Zoom because people really are able to, once they've dialed it in, like this far in where people are accustomed to things where someone can really turn their volume up loud or they can get headphones that work really well for them, that once people have found the equipment that works for them, even our members who have difficulties hearing have found accessible ways. And we can continue to improve that, right? There are even ways to have captions that are will auto captions. It's not perfect by any stretch of the means, but accessibility really does increase, I think, in Zoom mm-hmm. in some ways for audio in having these conversations online, especially as compared to our fellowship hall, which notoriously has audio challenges. And I think there's something about either our lights or just the audio system in general that has interferences with some of people's hearing aids. And so there's just a lot of, what did they say? Mm -hmm. That there's almost an intimacy to seeing one another's shoulders and seeing one another's homes and people's candlelight and hearing the stories of people talking about, oh, well, the land that's sacred to me and my family is this. And then we can then dig into, we've talked about our connection to these deeply sacred lands. And then when we start having these hard conversations about this sacred land that we share together, that we own together, and these questions of ethics around how do we use this property together that Deacon has brought up, that shared comfort really does allow us to have gone into some deeper questions with one another. All of the different methods that we find gathering with one another have a different use and a different purpose, but it certainly has been a very effective method for the work that we've been doing. Excellent. So basically what we're saying is if you haven't joined in yet, you absolutely should. It's one of those links that we don't publish very broadly, So it is something that if people are interested in coming along and joining in on our Wednesday evening, they are welcome to reach out to us. 
They can reach us at podcast at centralportland.org, and we will be sure to send along the invitation and the link. We could also, Deacon has the questions from our evenings, and we can probably add those to our... To the podcast page for this, yes. To the podcast page for this. That would be great. All right, that's going to lead me to my last question then. What is, and I'm going to ask each of you, what is your favorite takeaway so far from the discussions that you've had? I think my favorite takeaway so far that is still working on me like a river is that when the question of what is the piece of land that you feel the most connected to has been asked of me, and it's been asked multiple times now in a couple different contexts. The first time, I think, was in one of our Wednesday nights. I don't have an immediate answer. And listening to everyone's stories about their sacred land and what they feel connected to has made me realize that that is not normal. (laughs) What, that you don't have a place? Yeah, not to say that I'm so special and unique, but that that feeling of the untetheredness is a unique part of my experience of growing up moving so often as I did. Mm -hmm. And the kind of consistent moving that we did throughout my lifetime and as many places as I have lived and not being a homeowner until recently in my lifetime, that this new idea of relating to land in a way that is settled or creating a relationship with land in a way that is settled or in a way that has long-term ties is completely out of my understanding. And although I can think of like a tree that I have a strong connection to, it is like a connection to a person that I know I will release. It is not something that is a permanent thing. And that is working on me. And so what does that mean for who I am? And what does that mean for how I relate to things? And what does that mean for how I am in the world? Mo, one of our members said, well, is it cemeteries? Do you have a deep connection with cemeteries just in general? Mm -hmm. And so that might be it. It may be cemeteries are kind of my space, but I don't know. I'm still letting that work on me and whatever that means. But that has been the deepest, maybe not my favorite takeaway, (laughs) but but my deepest deepest takeaway from this work. Interesting. Okay, Deacon, your turn. I think my favorite experience has been just hearing the diversity of experiences. I grew up in a very specific place. I grew up in rural North Dakota. I lived there my whole life. I lived for a couple of years, a year and a half in Minneapolis, and then have lived in Portland. Since then, I've owned my home for 22 years. So I'm I'm someone who settles. Mm -hmm. And particularly my foundational experience was one very tied to the land. Everybody was farmers. Mm -hmm. And it was shared pretty much by the 300 people I I grew up with my town was 300 people and we were all doing the same thing and we were all sort of formed in the same way. So I have a particular way that I look at things. And then when I'm able to be in a room with 12 other people who, some of whom might be younger than me, many of whom are my age or older, and hearing the diversity of experiences 
living in different countries, in different cities, of all kinds of different ways of being attached to the land or learning to love the land when they learn to garden or all of these things just really makes such a wider experience for my own wonderings about what it means to be connected to the land. That's excellent. Well, thank you both, Pastor Amanda and Deacon Bonnie, for taking the time to help us all learn a little more about a grounded faith. I look forward to sitting down with you next week when you come back and talk to us again on another topic. Indeed, we are very excited to have Deacon Bonnie back with us next week. And until then, thank you all for joining us. We would love to hear from you if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas. If you want to share your land story with us, you can reach out to us on Facebook or email us at podcast at centralportland.org. Until we are back in your ears again, remember, God loves you no matter what.